the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Today we're discussing the fortunes of Manchester United Football Club and those of allied Irish banks. In the week of Manchester United's first trophy win since Alex Ferguson's retirement, we'll look at the business case for eliminating the very manager who brought the team success in the FA Cup. And in the week of AIB's AGM, we'll assess the prospects of a stock market flotation of the nationalised bank. But first, to the business world of soccer. Louis van Gaal finally delivered the goods of some sort on Saturday when Man United won the FA Cup, but it wasn't enough to salvage his post at the club. Jose Mourinho's arrival is now awaited as the team strives to restore its dominance of old. I'm joined in studio by Irish Times business affairs correspondent Mark Paul, whose allegiance to the club is unquestioned, and by Ken Early, Irish Times sports columnist and podcaster. Ken Early, from a business perspective, let's leave aside the actual ball football. Why did Van Gaal have to go? Well, the the main business reason for uh, you know sacking Louis Van Gaal at this point um, is probably that he failed to get into the Champions League. They finished fifth in the league, so uh, they don't get into the top four places, which would mean they would get into the Champions League, which uh, number one. Uh, is is responsible for a lot of revenue directly. I mean, you know, you can expect to make between 30 and 50 million pounds uh, from involvement in that competition and also uh, has an effect on the value of all the sponsorship contracts that they have uh, with, you know, the countless firms who are associated with them in in various capacities. Most obviously, Adidas, the kit manufacturer, uh, it's a 750 million, a 75 million pound a season deal I think they have with Adidas and uh, supposedly there are clauses in that uh, deal which um, essentially reduce the value of it uh, after a certain period out of the Champions League. Maybe it's two seasons, maybe it's one. Is it two seasons? Uh, So they're halfway there, halfway through to triggering um, a a collapse in the value of their kit deal uh, and to risk that actually happening, you know, in addition to missing out directly on the Champions League money, that's, that's a problem, even, you know. Mark Paul, so it's it's not actually about winning the cup, it's about something else, it's about money. Well, I mean, that's part of it. Um, um, as Ken said, you know, they're halfway through um, um, triggering a clause in, in the Adidas deal that would that, that would cost them money. Um, and but it's 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 part of. There's a wider story here in, as well, and that you know, Manchester United. And it pains me to say it, but they're not just a football club anymore. It, Manchester United is really a brand, a media brand. That's what that's what the business is. And every media brand needs narratives. Um, and and United's narrative is as a as a winner, as a champion. Um, um, you know, they lead from the front. That's that's the message that they sell to their sponsors, and it's hugely destructive to their business model not to be um, amongst the, the 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 top clubs in not just in England but in Europe. I mean, their entire business model is built upon that. Whether it's commercial sponsorship deals, whether it's the direct um, uh, money from being involved in, the, in in competitions, whether it's TV money or whether it's match day money, they have to stay on top of the league or as close to the top of the league as they can, um, um, or, or there'll be financial penalties from them. And you know, they don't. The, the club is isn't completely overwrought with borrowings in the way it was maybe three or four years ago. They've, they've gotten on top of that now. Um, um, but they still have net debt of about 
you know, about 400 million pounds sterling. Um, that's got to be serviced every year. Um, and uh, and they have to generate as much revenue as they can. Louis van Gaal didn't deliver. Um, um, Jose Mourinho, they feel, will. Uh, van Gaal would, would have known on his way into Wembley Stadium on Saturday that he was uh, essentially on the way out, it seems to me. Depends on who you believe. Uh, he seemed surprised afterwards. Uh, I mean, some, you know, I've heard that he was told actually on Wednesday, and I'm sure he had you know, more than an inkling that this might be his last game. Uh, I think he was still uh, pretty annoyed about the way that it all happened. Um, but I suppose that's just a tough look, you know. I mean, if he'd won more games, then this wouldn't have happened. Um, I mean, in terms of what you know, what Manchester United is about, and I mean, you were talking, Mark, about it being you know more than, or not just the football club. Uh, it may even not primarily be a football club anymore. Uh, and this is just a, a kind of an evolution that's taken place over the last... Uh, 10, 11 years since the, I mean, since the Glazer family takeover, um, and and you know the changes in general in the world in that time. Um, I mean, the Glazers took over, and obviously, uh, they you know it was a leveraged uh, a leveraged buyout. They um, needed to service a lot of debt. They needed to generate a lot of revenue. I mean, that's really their entire purpose in, in owning the club is for the club to make money. That's why they own the club. It's, it's to make well, money. Well, they're not from Manchester. No, I mean, but it, you know, that's, that's the way they see it. It's a different way of, of seeing it, I suppose. I mean, it's not as it's not Manchester United was founded you know, with, with the idea of making money, but that's now what a company like Manchester United is. It's, it's a way of, that you, you call it a company rather than a club. It's a way of making money rather than above anything else, at least to the people who control it and make the decisions there. So, for instance, one of them, Richard Arnold, is the group managing director. He was over in Dublin uh, about 18 months ago. He, was, he came over and did a talk at the Web Summit, uh, and he gave this uh, presentation, which was, which, was, which was quite revealing. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a very interesting presentation in and of itself, but it was more the sort of stuff he was talking about. I mean, I, I went into that thinking, you know, naively. The Manchester United saw themselves as competing with, like, Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool... Other brands, I think. It, it was, it was the, the, he was talking about Rihanna, uh, Justin Timberlake, Vin Diesel. He was Who saying, does Rihanna play for? Well, Rihanna is on Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I don't actually know if Rihanna's on Twitter. She's definitely on <laughs> Facebook and Instagram. She got a lot of followers. Mm. Vin Diesel has got a lot of followers. Richard Arnold was so proud that Manchester United had passed out Vin Diesel on Facebook just recently. And he's the guy running the football club. Yeah, I thought, I thought, is Vin Diesel really that famous? I thought Manchester United was much more famous than Vin Diesel. It turns out there's this thing called Fast and Furious, which a lot of people watch. Uh, maybe Richard Arnold among them. Vin Diesel is kind of a big deal. Manchester United is slightly bigger. So, th- so this was kind of the, uh, this was his outlook. Now, his whole, his whole justification for thinking this way mm. was the, the kind of formula, the more successful I am off the field, the more successful I, I will be on the field. In other words, all of this massive... Uh, money-making operation, which Manchester United uh, engages in, you know, selling uh, the brand around the world, dividing the world into territories, sell- selling off in, in different dimensions, you know, official snack food partner, official timekeeping partner, blah, 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 blah. Um, all of this is in the service of putting the best possible team in the field. But that's not true. All of it is in the service of making as much money as possible. The team is just... Well, they, they have a fiduciary duty to do it. I mean, I mean, this is what happens when you list part of your company on the stock exchange. You have a legal duty to those shareholders to maximise the value of their asset. And, and it's very, it's a very unemotional and and, and unfootball way to look at it. But um, and from a business point of view, from purely from a business point of view, at least, um, um, again, it pains me to say it, but the Glazers' stewardship of Manchester United has worked commercially. 
But wh- where is the fiduciary duty when they're taking on a new manager whose appointment is expected to be conser- confirmed imminently, whose departure from his old club for all of his great success previously was pretty ignominious? It was, it was, but there were particular circumstances there with Chelsea in terms of who was in charge and who was calling the shots and personalities falling out and so on. Actually, it, it's quite instructive, I think, when you look at what's holding up or what appears to be holding up Jose Mourinho's appointment. It's a row over image rights because he has a deal with Jaguar and Manchester United sponsors is Chevrolet and um, he has a deal with one watch company Manchester United has a deal with another watch company he's sponsored by one South Korean casino company Manchester United has a deal with another South Korean casino company and this is what's holding up the appointment not whether or not he'll get United back into the Champions League or whether he'll buy a new centre forward or whether they're going to pay him enough money it's, 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 it's the commercial agreements that each party has in place and if you look at the breakup of Manchester United's revenues now it's sort of broken up into three lumps it's more or less um, 50 per, or, you know, one quarter match day revenue um, um, I think is it's another quarter is um, um, uh, match day media like, yeah. as, in, as in TV money yeah yeah, 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 TV money, and then and then fifty percent commercial, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's gonna, it's it hasn't, it's it's been creeping. The commercial side of it, they started off kind of in the in the early nineties, realizing, hang on, yeah, we can sell these kind of shirts and you know mm. mugs and merchandise. People actually buy this stuff. Can you believe it? And that'll be an extra few quid for the club. But that's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, that merchandising is only a tiny slice of sponsorship now. Um, there are, you know, as I was talking about, these huge numbers of corporate partners who come on board, you know, the official Manchester United partner, airline partner in whatever, mm. you know. And uh, and that, this year, is going to be, for the first time, more than 50% of the total revenue. And what are those partners going to be thinking about the replacement of... Van Gaal with Mourinho. Well, Adidas will be delighted because uh, uh, Jose Mourinho is uh, is also has his own commercial deal with Adidas. Um, and actually, you know, when Van Gaal was under most pressure in January, when really a lot of people thought he was going to be sacked and a lot of fans wanted him to be sacked, the chief executive of Adidas stepped up when he shouldn't have done this, in my opinion, and he said, we're not really happy with the style of football that's being played. Now, I don't think a sponsor should have interfered like that, but that gentleman, Herb Hayner, is a personal friend of Jose Mourinho's. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories and and and, uh, and, and, and thoughts about what he meant when he did that. But and he's also it, it, paying it, tens of millions into, into the kitty. Well, he pays Piper, you know. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about Jose Mourinho is that it's, it's like if you look at the US uh, presidential election and the way in which Donald Trump has spent very little money on TV advertising because he didn't need to. It's like he's on the news all the time. Uh, he's got, uh, you know, well, I've, there's been a lot of coverage of this. You know, Trump has got more than a billion dollars worth of free coverage. Jose Mourinho is the Donald Trump of football managers. He is uh, more uh, newsworthy. He commands more attention. He seeks out more conflict. He's a he, narrative. He's a media narrative all by himself. And that, feed, got- that feeds the brand. And that. that- you know that that, that 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 brings more advertising in. in. Purely on commercial terms, he's a perfect Manchester United manager. But has he has he got his own name on a jet? Well, his own name apparently is a trademark of Chelsea Football Club at the moment. So if he does have his name on a jet, Chelsea are probably getting paid by whoever pays for that kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure he'll be able to wrest control of his name back from Chelsea. Either that, or maybe he has to change his name. The artist formerly known as Jose Mourinho. I don't know. Uh, but what, what about the, the artist known as Louis van Gaal? What, what next for him in terms of oh. money making? Holiday, ho- holidaying in Portugal, I think, is probably where he'll find. I think he'll retire. He, 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 you know, he's 65, 66 now. 60, yeah, 60, 64. He said it was going to be his last job. He was offered a job as technical director of the Dutch FA a couple of months ago, apparently. He turned it down. Um, um, he'll probably, he said uh, he's going to take his wife to Portugal and drink wine. 
I think maybe some some uh, lower intensity type of job. I mean, he did get a big payoff from Manchester United at least of nearly five million pounds. Uh, he had lost a lot of money apparently in the Bernie Madoff scandal back in the day. Uh, he was one of the investors that made off. Uh, so he needed to make some money for the pension fund, but surely he's in a better position now. So maybe he can do something that doesn't require, you know, 24-7 commitment and being criticized by an entire national media every single day uh, and maybe fitting in a bit of golf. Very good, gentlemen. Thank you very much. My thanks to Mark Paul, uh, business affairs correspondent of the Irish Times, and to Ken Early, sports columnist. It's clear that if you're not in football, you're in the wrong business. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Well, there's never a sleepy moment in Irish banks. Ulster Bank is in the news today with preparations to sell almost 900 million in troubled mortgages. And separately, Allied Irish Bank's AGM on Tuesday heard that the bank posted strong first quarter profits. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Joe Brennan, Irish Times markets correspondent, and by Stephen Lyons of Davy Stockbrokers. Joe Brennan, what is going on with these mortgages at Ulster Bank? Yeah, so the um, the mortgage sale is, is part of a broader portfolio of 2.5 uh, billion of uh, par value loans that Ulster Bank is now putting up for sale this week. Um, the mortgages would you're really at the, the tail end of the restructuring of the, the asset sales in, in Ulster Bank. Um, it started doing a lot of asset sales back in 2014 and had largely completed that. So they're really kind of gathering the kind of the worst kind of loans that they would have had in their in their their uh, non-core bank as well as in the, the, the what they would have thought would be in the core bank as well but just gathering these and, and, and putting them up for sale and within that you have about 875 million euros of mortgages now two-thirds of those would be buy to let mortgages and a third of that would be owner occupied mortgages so you're talking less than 300 million euros of owner occupier mortgages and um, these are all um well into arrears um, territory. Um, we understand from, from sources that um, 95% of the mortgages are more than two years in arrears, uh, 88% more than three years in arrears, and f- almost 60% of these mortgages are being sold are more than four years in arrears. So you're talking about fairly bad loans at this stage that they're looking to sell. And I suppose it's an issue for, for banks in general as they have been restructuring loans over the last number of years. They're getting to a stage where they're coming across the more tricky kind of loans and how do they try and sort those out, particularly guys who actually aren't aren't actually working with the bank. Uh, why, why would Ulster Bank be selling these now? 
Um, I think this, you know, banks over the last few years would have been working with the kind of the loans with with borrowers who would have, you know, who would have been engaging with them. Um, they could have come up with some sort of resolution. There could have been some sort of um, uh, write off of, of unsustainable debt. But when you get to a stage where customers, you have trickier customers who aren't engaging or clearly in, you know, in arrears for a, a number of years, they have to kind of look at, you know, other ways of getting them off their balance sheet. Remember that banks have to hold uh, higher levels of capital against um, uh, against uh, loans that are in default. So they have that consideration as well. So they have to kind of think of more innovative kind of ways of, of dealing with those trickier loans. So this is the point at which the bank essentially uh, takes its loss. But what is the prospect for the people who are the owners of those uh, homes and those mortgages? Yeah, I mean, these all of these loans are are actually all of these mortgages are in the uh, in in the legal uh, world as it stands. They've all um, most of them actually have had two dates uh, through the courts where the bank is seeking to repossess. So they're well into repossession territory. So you're talking, you know, that the more really really difficult cases where the bank sees no uh, prospect of having a borrower at the end of the day that they can engage with in future. Uh, banks generally, when they're trying to restructure loans, they're trying to put a borrower on a, on a footing where they can actually uh, become a viable customer in future. Clearly, these are borrowers that they don't want to deal with again. And who would be in the market to buy this portfolio of loans? Well, we've had, um, over the last number of years, we've had uh, all kinds of uh, private equity hedge fund uh, types that have been buying up huge portfolios. I mean, they started off with the commercial real estate portfolios that uh, the banks would have been selling off and NAMA would have been selling off. Now you're seeing a few of the, uh, of the, of the mortgage portfolios coming up for sale. So the same kind of typical types of buyers. They're more interested in the underlying asset than they are in, obviously, the, the, the customer themselves. And the, their their objective would be to, to turn a profit on, on, on the transaction. They're going to buy them at a particular rate. They're going to... Uh, Deep discount. That would yeah. reflect, the, 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 reflect the underlying collateral, the underlying value of the of the, the, the house themselves. Uh, Stephen Lyons, would, would you expect a, a large degree of interest in this kind of portfolio? Well, we have seen significant interest over the last few years across... A lot of those distressed asset sales that we've seen. And as Joe said, I mean, as to why now, well, Ulster Bank has significant capital held against these mortgages, so it has the capacity to sell at a deeper discount and move on. And also, as we've seen, Ulster Bank Ireland differentiate itself and separate itself from the northern entity. It's it's now looking like a cleaner bank, but it's got a very high cost base. So by trying to get rid of these more difficult to deal with problem loans, there's, there's re- ongoing reduction in the cost base thereafter. So certainly on the basis of a much reduced price, you would expect there to be significant interest from all the usual names that we've seen in terms of asset sales over the last few years. Okay, very good. And Joe, uh, you've been writing the last couple of days that uh, AIB is in the very, very early stages of embarking on on, on a similar process within its own business. Yeah, I mean, it just shows that, you know, banks are getting to a stage where they really have to try and work on and try and work out, figure out how they're going to deal with the really, really tricky cases at the end of the day um, to try and get their overall uh, non-performing loan ratios right down. It's it's something that banks across Europe are under huge pressure for, and and not least Irish banks. Yeah, so what we understand is that AIB is at least considering this as part of their kind of scenario planning um, uh, the prospect of, 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 of possibly selling off some of their uh, non-performing loans. Now, the bank says that they have no active project at the moment and they can keep everything under consideration. Um, 
up until now, it has been the, the, the overseas owned banks that have been selling off loans. We haven't really seen, um, sorry, mortgages. We haven't really seen the, the domestic players um, selling off mortgages. We've had Bank of Ireland selling off a, a batch of mortgages, about 230 million euros of performing mortgages back in 2014 when it was told to sell off a, a portfolio of assets that would have been part of the ICS uh, building society. That was under direction from the European Commission as part of its own bailout. Um, permanent TSB sold off um, almost 500 million euros of par value subprime mortgages that it would have built up um, back in before the the, 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 the crash. Um, AIB did a small amount of buy-to-let uh, mortgage sales back in 2012, but it was part of an overall portfolio, commercial and um, real estate portfolio, that would have had some kind of buy-to-let assets attached to it. But this, if this were to come about, it would be a new departure for the taxpayer bailed-out Irish banks. And, and what's the position with the, the portfolio of mortgages within Allied Irish banks uh, in terms of those that part of the portfolio which is non-performing? How is it doing in terms of working its way through those loans? Well, they've cut down. I mean, I think that the, the figure they gave in their in their trading update um, is that uh, arrears for owner-occupied uh, customers is down 29% from, from the peak and buy-to-let is down 27% um, from, from the peak. I don't have the actual... Uh, figure for the arrears quantum at the moment. And Stephen Lyons, well, just in terms on, of those loans? Yeah, well, on that point, um, certainly, and you're seeing this system-wide, while the total level of arrears, both owner-occupier and buy-to-let, it's falling all the time, and it has for quite some time now. Within that, there's a rising balance of those real problem, those one-year-plus, those two-year-plus cases as a proportion of that's what's outstanding. So that's why you're seeing this greater push to try and maybe encounter countenance sales of some of those disposals to really work through those trickier pieces as you get to the, the longer tail pieces. And this is one of, one of the, the, the legacy issues from the crash as a nationalised institution of Allied Irish Banks tries, such as Allied Irish Banks, tries to put that very uh, deeply unpleasant and very costly for taxpayers experience behind it. Absolutely. And certainly when you look at AIB over the last few years, I mean, actually the restructuring and the work through of their non-performing loans has definitely been one of the big success stories. I mean, they did have, I think, at peak about 29 billion nominal of non-performing loans outstanding. They had about 2,000 staff working in their financial solutions group. So you've seen that staff now I'd shrunk, mostly redeployed to other areas, more growth-oriented recovery areas across the bank. But you've also seen that balance now shrink down from $29 billion down to $12 billion, in large part reflecting what we're seeing in the overall economy as well. So those are very strong positives as we reorient the bank towards a re-IPO story. Now, all, all of this, of course, takes place against the backdrop of preparations for a flotation or a reflotation of the bank on the stock market. And this is going to be the big issue which is coming down the tracks, but not quite just yet, as we all know. But before we go into that, have a listen to this report from Declan Conlon, who is producer of this podcast, who was at the AGM yesterday and who spoke to investors on the floor and who also listened in to what was being said at the very top table. The bank is in a, a much better position at this stage, but there are still significant numbers of disgruntled shareholders, middle-aged elderly people. This was their life savings, this was their pension, and it's completely wiped out. I thought I was saving securely, 
and had, as it happened, been assured the day before by a junior bank official, I will say, um, that um, they were squeaky clean were his words. And the next day I was wiped. Um, but every now and again you hear that um, it's going to be bought over and I wonder, well, is that going to be a, a good idea? Uh, does that mean that the shares will go back up, way back up? Or does it mean it's just going, they're just going to be another useless piece of paper? Uh, Bernard Byrne, Chief Executive. First point to make is 2015 uh, was a very, very important year for AIB. Um, and at the end of it, one of the, the sort of the key issues for us was we ended up with a simplified and strengthened capital structure. That was vital for the bank. Uh, I'm a little happier than I was a year or two ago, certainly. Uh, I'm very conscious, of course, that uh, perhaps much of the new effort is directed towards enabling the government's shareholding to be disposed of at a, a reasonably decent price, eventually. Sustainably profitable. We have strong underlying profitability in the business. So the overall message here is a really good performance for the business in Q1 this year, continuing the momentum we've established before, and certainly the business well positioned for whatever decision that the, the government um, would decide to make in terms of any privatisation. Would you invest in the AIB again? I will stay with the shares I've got. Not now, but maybe later. No, I wouldn't recommend any investors take any investment in this, you know. I think there's other stocks in the private sector that would be a better investment than other Irish banks, you know. Now, that was the view from the floor of the uh, Allied Irish Bank's AGM on Tuesday. Joe, we're past the point at which eggs are being thrown at the chairman, but uh, there's still a bit of a dis understandable discontent amongst investors. But the, the wider question here is, when exactly is the bank going to be put back onto the stock market? And the big story coming out of... 2015 into this year was that there were preparations underway for an IPO, an initial public offering, sometime this year, possibly before the summer, if it was even said. And then, of course, we had the general election and we had political stasis for 70 days. And once we, the new government took office, as soon as Michael Noonan, the finance minister, took possession of his seat again in the Department of Finance, he said, look, at, there's going to be no flotation this year. It's going to be 2017. What's going on? Well, actually, if we step back, um, I remember um, then um, uh, Chief Executive David Duffy saying in 2013 that actually it could be ready for a, a, a share sale in 2014. So, yeah, I mean, at this stage, it looks like it's been flagged by uh, Finance Minister Michael Noonan that it's 2017 before we see uh, a, a share sale in or what's been touted as an IPO of, of, of AIB. I suppose... Um, Look at the the IPO markets are are, are are not in a great shape at the moment. Last year, it, obviously, we got um, permanent TSB away at almost kind of book value, which would have been a kind of it was a huge price at the time. Um, maybe they missed a kind of trick coming out with AIBs, you know, immediately after af, after that. Um, but yeah, so AIB is, is shareholders are going to have to wait um, for effectively another year before AIB makes it to market. It takes a long time to to, to line up an IPO, so you can't do it in a matter of. Uh, a couple of months. Sure, but I mean, the, the, the process was well flagged. Stephen Lyons, did the minister's intervention come as any great surprise on the, on, on the floor in Davy Stockbrokers? No, I don't think it did in that you can see certainly year-to-date equity capital markets activity is certainly down significantly on last year. Wider market issues reflect that, but also specifically at home you've had 
the political status that you referred to, but you've also had the UK referendum, which is always seen as being something that needs to be overcome or it need, need to be dealt with certainty on that before you progress. Now, UK is probably only rec- represents about mid-teens percentage of AIB's loan book, but having retrenched dramatically from overseas um, post-crisis, it's it's its one overseas exposure that it significantly has. So it wasn't you know it wasn't a significant um, surprise that it had been delayed. It would have been aligned with expectations and consistent with the message of trying to get maximum value for the shareholder as well. And it's also the case that the the Brexit referendum in Britain doesn't take place for another month, so nothing can happen before it in the light of the uncertain outcome. And even though it seems to me that markets now expect that Britain ultimately will vote to remain, it will be very difficult to put uh, procedures in place to execute an IPO after an event, the uh, the outcome of which is uncertain. Absolutely. The the one thing that I think they could be consistent on is they're readying themselves. I think management has previously said they're ready to go at two months' notice. They've been engaging with shareholders in the marketplace as well. So as and when the minister deems it best fit, the market conditions are most appropriate to get maximum value in his eyes, he can push the button and they'll be ready to go. And what's the, I mean, what's the level of investor interest? I mean, if, if, the, if the decision effectively is to wait, does that not suggest that investors aren't ready yet? Well, to the point of, we talked about the UK referendum, the extent that there are uncertainties, there are discounts attached, and we don't want those discounts attached. We want the bank to look as clean as possible, the investment case to be as certain and understandable as process when we when we see the bank re-engage with investors. We talked about the success in reducing these non-performing loans over the past few years. Well, uh, the point earlier, have, have we maybe missed a trick? If this bank had been IPOing last year when we were seeing this stream of write-backs coming through from the bank, very difficult for investors to really model for that and put a value on future write-backs. Well, we saw last year over a billion of write-backs come back, and we saw at the end of the year then this, the state was able to recoup 1.7 billion of its investment. Had it IPO'd ahead of that, we mightn't have gotten all of that. That might have gone to shareholders or been shared with new shareholders. But there is another issue in the backdrop, Joe Brennan, and that is the political controversy around the very high rates of uh, that customers who hold variable rate mortgages are being charged by the banks. Now, Allied Irish Banks, almost wholly owned by the state as a bank which has moved on four occasions in the last year to cut its mortgage rates. Nevertheless, the view from the bank at the AGM was that it was impervious to political pressure. To what extent is this issue a question for investors who might be running the rule over Allied Irish Banks? I I think the key thing, maybe one of the key things for for AIB over the next six months to a year is to, before it goes back to the market, is to make that very clear distinction from being a bank that is state-owned to being a bank that is a commercial entity and will be run as a commercial entity. Um, The chief executive uh, came out yesterday when he was asked about um, had there been any political pressure brought upon him by the the finance minister and by political circles to to introduce those rate cuts as they've come about, including the most recent one there a few weeks ago and he says no you can't act at the whim of, of, of the government and there are there is a framework agreement that allows a bank to be run commercially but I suppose investors really need to to get a sense of that a clear sense of that that um, the, the, the bank is going to be run as a commercial um, uh, business 
and this is a live issue. And I urge you both to have a listen now to this clip from the floor of the AGM yesterday in which the matter was brought up by an inquisitive shareholder, I think would be the best way of describing the man. There is another lender in Ireland which is a lot cheaper than AIB. For example, for a three-year fixed rate, AIB charges 3.65%. Spite be the cheapest-ish, is 3.65%. The other lender charges 2.29% for a fixed rate over three years. For a two-year deposit rate, AIB pays 0.55%. The other bank pays 1.6%. So this other bank, Mr. Chairman, pays a much higher deposit rate and charges a much lower mortgage rate. Do you know the name of that other bank, Mr. Chairman? Does, do the figures strike a bell of any sort? Sorry, that's the question. Please make your point. That's First Trust Bank. That's AIB Northern Ireland. So, uh, Stephen Lyons, uh, clearly a, a shareholder who uh, is having a look at the bank's offering on both sides of the border. So it is, it's a live issue for customers. It's a live issue for bank customers everywhere. To what extent is this a live issue in this question of political pressure for corporate investors, for big ticket investors who might be considering putting some money into allied Irish banks whenever the IPO takes place? I think the overall pressure at the moment on mortgage rates, whether it's political, whether it's competitive driven, it's a very live issue, and particularly when you look at the politics of it and the, and the headlines coming out, the fact is that this legislation that's been brought out, that will take a long time to progress, so we're set to endure these headlines for a prolonged period. So certainly from the outside looking into Ireland, the, the headlines don't look favourable. Now, that said, f from our perspective, it's, it's the competitive dynamics which are all important, and AIB have been leading the charge lower on rates. The expectation is that will continue to happen. And why is that happening? It's happening because they're trying to remodel or rebrand themselves, recreate themselves under this putting customers first mantra. And to do that, you need to be able to show that you're treating front and back book customers the same in their eyes. And also that when you are seeing reduced funding costs, which they are, um, but only more laterally, that they can pass those on to customers and maintain that number one market share position that they have in customers uh, or in the mortgage market. So it is a very live issue, but I think the politics of it aside, it is more about the competitive dynamics. And I think everybody, you saw KBC move quickly after AIB, you'd, you'd undoubtedly expect other banks to be reacting in step as well. When you say it's a live issue, is this something which would deter investors from putting money into Irish banks? I mean, because there is a there's a kind of there's a nuanced interpretation. Yes, we have a lot of political noise. Yes, we have legislation before the House in the Dáil. Yes, that legislation might very well be passed. Yes, the central bank might very well be given the power to impose a cap on mortgage rates. But we all know that the central bank is a bank which is saying it's not going to actually deploy that power. And the bank cannot be directed by politicians to do that. Yeah, I think if you drew it out to the, that final conclusion and there was a surprise and central bank governor was to start imposing rate caps, yes, that would be deemed very negative. But the headlines that people are seeing, 
when we talk them through and when people interpret what the central bank governor has been saying, they can see it for the political headlines that it is. But the more real pressing issue is competitive dynamics. Joe Brennan wants to get in here. Yeah, just uh, I suppose um, while that's kind of playing out, uh, on the plus side for the bank as well, it's managed to increase or widen its net interest margin, which is a kind of keenly followed um, gauge for investors. That's gone up to 2.09% for the first quarter compared to 1.97% for the the whole of last year. And it's guided that that will continue to expand even though the most most recent rate cut has yet to take uh, effect because it is redeeming uh, high-cost bonds that were issued to the government at the height of the crisis, uh, contingent convertible bonds um, in July, and they would have had a coupon of about 10%. And also that NAMA, which uh, paid the banks in very, very low-yielding um, senior bonds for, for loans that it bought from the banks back in 2010, it's redeeming those at a, at a fast pace as it sells off its own assets. So that kind of helps the bank as well. Stephen Lance, presumably this is a message which is getting through to, to big-ticket investors. Over time, initially when, as I said, they're, they're just looking from the outside in, they've got lots of other things in their portfolios to be maintaining, headlines capture, capture attention. So it's been helpfully, as they've increasingly delved into the story, they can see that behind that, as Joe says, we've got competition driving down rates, but in a context that margins are improving anyway. Well, very good. My thanks to Stephen Lyons of Davy Stockbrokers and to Joe Brennan of the Irish Times. That's it for this week's business podcast. The incomparable Declan Conlon produced and the equally incomparable JJ Vernon was on sound. The Irish Times is out six days a week and all was online. Keep reading. And until next time, thanks for listening to this business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley.